0: record collections and recollections out of the box with mia hull on fbi radio
1: hey mia hull here on the podcast streaming online or live on your radio from 12 to 1 this is out of the box every week i sit down with one guest and roll through the stories and songs that have shaped their life If you notice the lacklustre audio quality or ambient noises today, it's because my guest and I are each recording from our homes. Both of us are broadcasting from Gadigal country, so I'd like to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Today I'm joined by the Honourable and Proudly Labor Member for Sydney, Tanya Plibersek. She was elected as the Member for Sydney in 1998 and since then has tirelessly backed social causes in the House of Representatives. She served as Minister in both the Rudd and Gillard governments and served as the Deputy Leader for the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party alongside Bill Shorten. But that's beside the point. Tanya is a mother, wife, bushwalker and music lover. And today she's here to talk about the special moments and special records that have defined her life. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box today, Tanya. It's really great to be with you, Mia. Thanks very much for inviting me. Let's wind back the clock to before your life even began. I want to talk about your parents. Where did they grow up?
0: Well, both my parents were born in what was then Yugoslavia is um, in the part of the northern part of Yugoslavia, which is uh, now independent Slovenia. And they both grew up um, on farms. My dad grew up in the mountains in this little um, stone house with a dirt floor. Uh, He he actually slept in the barn because there wasn't room for him in the house um my mum very similar story Uh, they actually grew up not very far apart in Slovenia but they didn't meet till they both came to Australia they
1: met at a dance at the Paddington Town Hall. Let's talk about their journey to Australia because your mum had a pretty eventful trip here didn't she? Well both of them did I mean
0: they after they were little kids during the Second World War and that was a a very difficult time for them uh, My father was the youngest child in his family So his older brothers um, were off fighting uh, There was obviously never enough food There was a constant sense of danger when they were growing up And for my mum in particular She said every time there were soldiers nearby The family used to hide the little girls in the cellar um, So it was a very difficult childhood And they both, uh, after the Second World War um, was over, Yugoslavia closed its borders and uh, you weren't allowed to leave. They they both left in the middle of the night. So my dad escaped across the border to Austria and my mum escaped across the border to Italy and they um, ended up being processed by the International Organization for Migration as refugees and came to Australia essentially because um, it was the fastest place they could go there was um, the waiting list was shorter than America or Canada that was really it, it was you know as
1: as as much chance as that really. And eventually they wind up at that dance at the Paddington Town Hall where they would go on to become your parents do you think having come from such difficult circumstances they imparted any particular values on you and your siblings?
0: Yeah, I, I think probably the most important um, thing that, that in, they imparted to us, not really intentionally, like I think just by their example, is that we're very lucky to live in a place that's safe and peaceful for most people, and um, your responsibility, <laughs> so you have a responsibility to. If, if you're that lucky to be born you know in a, in a time of peace and prosperity is to give something back and I was I was actually thinking about this just this morning I remember as a kid um we'd catch the train into fr- from the Sutherland Shire where I grew up um we'd catch the train in to the botanical gardens or Hyde Park on a Sunday morning and and have a picnic and you know they'd coffee in a thermos and some homemade cake my mother had made or something and if my parents ever saw someone sleeping rough they would um, pour out a cup of coffee and cut off a piece of cake and take it to that person and and sit and talk to them and share cake and coffee with them and so it was never... um, Austin kind of ostentatious do-gooding but just a real sense of solidarity and compassion for the people around them and I think that was really because they had as I said very difficult childhoods themselves and difficult journeys and they really gave us that sense you know there but for the grace of God go I like there's no no question that we were lucky and and that was just a
1: matter of chance in their eyes. That empathy towards people sleeping rough is something we'll revisit later in your story too. Let's talk about your life growing up in the Sutherland Shire. What was it like there? It was fantastic. It was a great
0: childhood. Um, you know, I had lovely parents and we used to go to the beach all the time and go to the national park and all that. It was quite unusual that we were from a non-English speaking background, like the, the. I think, you know. Um, In my high school of 800, there was probably only half a dozen of us girls that came from, you know, various kind of ethnic backgrounds. So it's pretty Anglo. It was like most people's childhood, I suppose. Most of it good, occasional you know,
1: hide terror and hide drama, <laughs> um, but yeah, it was good and Tanya, you had two brothers who were quite a bit older than you. W- what did it mean to grow up with big brothers like that? It was fantastic. I loved it. I really, really loved having
0: big brothers, and uh, they were both incredibly different. like My oldest brother was a typical oldest child, very responsible um, he uh, he talked to me a lot about history and politics and current events and got me to listen to the news and all that sensible stuff and then my middle brother um, was a real risk taker so he used to take me record shopping on a Saturday morning and um, take me out to pubs when I was not quite 18 uh, (laughs) and um, invite me to parties at his house with his friends and so I think I really benefited from having two super different Um, influences in my life and being able to
1: um, get the benefit of both of them. When you talk about them having super different perspectives, did that translate to politics? Were there big differences in the way that they were politically engaged? Uh, Yeah, I mean, one really good example
0: is um, uranium. So uh, my oldest brother and I were opposed to opening up Uh, more uranium mines in Australia and my middle brother was a geologist so he was all in favour of more uranium being dug up out of the ground and nuclear power so we used to have some pretty fierce debates around the dinner table and I th- I think that was really good for me. I-, I think it was really good for me to learn to listen and disagree constructively and to form arguments and hold my ground.
1: Yeah, and that opposition to uranium kind of carried through into early politics for you as well. Tell me about your first entry into the Labour Party. I was just a teenager really and I
0: the things that I was interested in were um, opposing uranium mining, opposing, <laughs> nu- uh, uh, opposing uh, French nuclear tests in the South Pacific. I was in favour of uh, Aboriginal land rights. I was a feminist. And so um, I felt like the Labor Party was the natural place for me uh, but I didn't join until I was at an International Youth Year event at the Sutherland Entertainment Centre and I got um, selected to be the spokesperson for our little group of kids who were, you know, we were asked to come up with a strategy for council to reduce the, the, use of drug, the use of drugs in the Sutherland Shire. And my speech was about, well, maybe you should be focusing more on issues like poverty and economic inequality and um, perhaps the drugs would take care of themselves. (laughs) And one of the one of the Labour councillors came up to me and said, I really think you should join the Labour Party. Hazel Wilson, I'm still friends with her. That was the thing that made me think of politics as something I could be involved
1: in rather than just something to observe. And you have been involved in politics in a very big way, which we'll look at for the rest of the show. First, let's play the first song you've picked for today. It's by The Lighthouse Keepers. Why did you choose this
0: one? I love this song. This song, l- the the bands of the 80s, the Australian bands of the 80s, like The, the Lighthouse Keepers, The Triffids, The Go-Betweens, and a bunch of others, I... I just think they, <clears throat> they have such a uniquely Australian sound and these are the bands that I was listening to growing up that my brother was putting on the record player when we'd catch the train from Ginelli Station into Town Hall on a Saturday morning and, and go to, um, you know, Red Eye Records or somewhere to, to listen to new music and think about, you know, every fortnight or so splurging on a record. These were the bands that we were listening to. These were the bands that I was going to see underage at pubs. And I love it that they tell an Australian story. They've got an Australian sound. Uh, And the Lighthouse Keepers in particular, I chose this one because I I love Juliet Ward's voice. And um, I saw, in fact, I saw the Lighthouse Keepers again at the Sandringham Hotel I think they they kind of regrouped in about 2011 after 20-something years of not playing together and it was just listening to these songs was like being transported back to my teens and every time I listen to them, that's how it feels.
1: Let's dive into that right now on FBI Radio. The song is called Ocean Liner. It's by the Lighthouse Keepers. You're listening to Out of the Box with me, Mia Hull and the member for Sydney, Tanya (laughs) Plibersek. That was Ocean Liner by The Lighthouse Keepers on FBI Radio 94.5. It was chosen by my guest on the show today, Tanya Plibersek. Tanya, just before we were talking about your entry into politics and how it kind of centred on social justice issues, your opposition to uranium was one of the reasons that you stepped away. But in 1995, you jumped back in. Why did you rejoin the Labor Party? I actually
0: left because I was angry about um, the end of the three mines policy. It was a uranium mining issue and and also um, land rights. We hadn't moved enough on land rights. But I rejoined because I just thought there is no point sitting on the outside throwing stones. Nobody ever achieves anything by just being a critic uh, from the outside looking in. You've got to get in there, that, that you know, famous Roosevelt speech about the man in the arena. You better, you're better to have a go and fail than never have a go. And that's how I felt really about politics, that you can't, you can't remove yourself and, and act superior and not really have the fight and then complain that you haven't won. And there's so many, you know, so many good people involved, that I share values with and want to work together with. And the only thing that ever really works is people cooperating to to make big changes. And they don't happen quickly and they don't happen easily, but they never happen if the
1: good people vacate the field. When you did decide to get back into the arena, you did so at the King's Cross branch, which meant that when the seat for Sydney opened up, you were pre-selected and ultimately ended up winning that seat. Walk me through that experience, Tanya. That was huge. You were really young at the time. I was really young. Uh, the
0: sitting member, Peter Baldwin, announced that he was going to retire. And he he actually, um, nobody really expected him to go. So there was no kind of organised, obvious successor. So there were 13 candidates in the internal Labor Party contest, the pre-selection. There were 13 candidates. Um, we you know, had more than a thousand branch members in the seat at the time. and uh, We had months of campaigning, door-knocking branch members one by one, trying to make our case to them. And look, essentially, I just thought I had nothing to lose. You know, I was in my late 20s and I thought it was a long shot that people would trust someone as young as me. But I had nothing to lose. So I think that's a real... That's been a, a real gift in my life. There's been a few times where I've just kind of rolled the dice and thought, well, you know, the worst thing that happens here is I I learn a few interesting life lessons. I had a lot of people encouraging me and supporting me and I had a few people who tried to talk me out of it and I just had to say, look, it's not easy but it's worth having a shot, why not? <laughs> and it worked
1: out. I find that attitude so interesting. Like, I've got nothing to lose, I might as well. Would you have described yourself as a very ambitious person at the time?
0: I still don't think I'm actually an ambitious person. I think I'm a person who has big ideas and a capacity for hard work. And I really, you know, I'm really committed to seeing change. But it's not a you know here's my 5 year plan and if i'm not chairman of the board by the time i'm 29 i'm a failure it's not that kind of ambition it's actually these are the things that i want to change in the world how do i how do i
1: work with other people to change them i love what you said before about rolling the dice and i think throughout your career there are so many instances yeah, just, just rolling the dice and taking big swings And sometimes that has meant huge triumphs And sometimes it hasn't So I'm keen to come back to that idea later in the show But first, a song You've chosen The Falling Joys to play today, Tanya What, what does this track mean to you? Oh, this is a song
0: that I played a lot when I was at uni And those first few first few years out of uni um, Lockett is it's just such a sweet song it's um it's beautiful I, like I, I love um i love the um, images of the lighthouse sweeping its arms around it reminds me of holidays in Byron Bay you know driving for 10 or 12 hours in an old valiant through the sugarcane fields and getting to to Byron on a holiday and i i really like it's that being brave saying I really like you you know the first time you say to someone I really like you it takes (laughs) so it's such a small thing to say but it takes uh such courage and I again you know like I really love Susie Higgy's voice I like the kind of
1: um jangliness of the guitar it's beautiful it's the falling joys on FBI radio 94.5 the song is called Lock It Song was chosen by the honourable and proudly Labor member for Sydney, Tanya Plibersek. It was called Locket by the Falling Joys, and you heard it right here on Out of the Box on FBI Radio. Tanya, we left things in 1998 when you won the Sydney seat. I want to jump forward a few years to your push to make Australia a republic. Why was that important to you? Oh, I think it's like a kid growing up and leaving home. You
0: know, you, you can still love your parents. But comes a time when it's time to grow up, and for me, uh, you know, there's so many fantastic things about our country. Right, we are so lucky to have sixty thousand years of continuous living culture here in Australia, where uh, we've been strengthened by generation um, after generation of migrants from different parts of the world, and and I think an Australian republic is an acknowledgement that we're we're not a Colony anymore. We're not a, we're not an offshoot of anyone. We are our, you know, our our own country. And it's also, I think, you know, like I've I've always been a supporter of the republic. But I think um, the debate today also gives us the opportunity to think about what does that mean to be a nation, to be an independent nation. So, I think the the um, argument for a republic really goes hand in hand with constitutional recognition. For First Australians and the other um, elements of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, I think it's like while we're at it, we better get the whole thing right, and that means properly acknowledging the unique place that First Nations Australians have in Australia and the unique relationship um, with the land. Um, so it, it's it's a yeah I've I've always been a, a Republican, but I think my My views on what an Australian Republic is have sort of evolved
1: Mm. in that time too. Yeah, becoming a Republic obviously means a lot more than just moving away from the monarchy. When you were pushing for this, obviously it didn't happen in the way that you'd hoped. What do you make of that?
0: I think it was another sad example of fear trumping hope and... I, I was so frustrated by some of the conversations I had at the time because um I could see the fear campaign was working, you know, people like Tony Abbott saying you can't trust a politician to run the country. So, you know, if we had a an Australian head of state, it would be a politician and I was like Tony Abbott saying you can't trust politicians, it's a bit ironic. <laughs> um, and then but basically saying to people, well if you don't if you don't know enough about it, just vote no. Instead of saying, if you don't know enough about it, let's have a conversation about it. What are your fears? How can we, you know, how can we do this in, the, in a way that is positive and uplifting and brings us together? And instead had a bunch of people playing on fear and division and, you know, really everything that's worst about us. And politics actually there are moments like that where you really see are we are we going to go low road is are we going to retreat and and act from fear or are we going to op- be be open and embracing and move forward and be positive and you know look to the future and the republic the loss of that was because we had some some people who were just determined to play on fear and division and I'm always sad when that happens.
1: Yeah and I guess playing on fear and division in that way pushed the idea of Australia as a republic really far back on the back burner. If we're talking about rolling the dice politically that was probably one of the times that you rolled the dice and weren't so successful. Yeah, I think timing was a big factor in that as well. So while we're talking about timing, this wouldn't be an interview with Tanya Plibersek without addressing the fact that all three of your kids were born after you entered federal politics. What did you learn from that experience, Tanya?
0: Uh, it's amazing how little sleep a human being really can survive <laughs> on. <laughs> oh, look, I don't know. I, I, I love having children. I love the people that they're growing into. They're just great, interesting human beings. And um, I always wanted to have kids and I feel really lucky to be in a generation where I didn't have to choose between a career and a family. Um, It doesn't mean that it comes without sacrifice. Both my husband and I have had to say no to things throughout our work lives that Would have impacted badly on our family, and uh, I feel lucky that I've got a partner who um, has made as many sacrifices as I have in that in that way. Um, But my overwhelming feeling is uh, of this great good fortune that I get to have this family that I adore and a job that is emotionally and psychologically rewarding, intellectually challenging, just so interesting. And I feel grateful to the women who have previous genera of previous generations who fought so hard to make room for me to do that. And I feel this great sense of responsibility to um, my daughter's generation and you know all the ones who come after to make sure that I'm one of those people making room for them making. The path a little bit easier again. It, it was hard for me at times. I want it to be easier for the next generation. Of
1: course. While you're working on forging that space for your family and for women in future generations, do you think the people on the other side of that, the political side, might learn from your choices?
0: I, I get a little frustrated when um, I hear, it's usually Kind of conservative women saying, "I don't need feminism. I'm not a feminist. Uh, it's all about, you know, personal um, achievement. We don't need. We don't need affirmative action or policies that would make room for women. That's just bullshit. Um, if you don't recognise that there is structural inequality in society, then you can't address that structural inequality." There's a reason that women still earn 14% less than men. There is a reason that women are vastly more likely to be assaulted or killed by someone that they are in an intimate relationship with than a stranger. There is a reason that women um, retire with less superannuation than men. It's not because we don't work as hard. It's not because we're not as smart or as capable. It's not because we're weak. There are... Thousands of years of inbuilt um, gender inequalities that we have to face and deal with if we want life to be better for our daughters.
1: I'm mm. thinking about that plight and about the sacrifices you've had to make in the way of that. I'm sure you know that I'm about to ask you about your choice not to step up and become the leader of the Labor Party following Bill Shorten's resignation. You cited having a family as the key reason you wouldn't be taking the job. Where does that fit into these values that you're talking about and the idea that women are capable of holding these big positions
0: yeah i did I did when I made that decision I did worry a little bit that I was sending a message that you know it's impossible to do the job at the highest level uh, and have a family and I know colleagues of mine like Kate Ellis who uh, retired a couple of years ago because she wanted to spend more time with the family and Nicola Roxon who said the same thing when she retired. Every one of us has worried that we're sending a message to, you know, the next generation of political activists that these things are incompatible. But the truth is my daughter's going to be 21, my oldest will be 21 in January for more than 20 years, I have been combining these two roles. And I really hope the lesson that uh, young women take from my career is not that you can't do this part of the job, but you can do all of the amazing stuff I've had the opportunity to do in my life and have a family. And I also hope that that the message is not just for young women but also for young men that they should expect the women in their lives, their the girls they go to school with, their sisters, to be as successful, as hard-working, as willing to uh, take those steps forward in their careers uh, as, that, as they are, as boys encouraged to be. So I hope the message is not just a um, narrow sort of message about what, what girls can do, but a broader message about gender equality and the fact that you actually need to share the load at home if you've got a, a male and a female and a couple and they both want to pursue interesting lives, then you've got to divide the boring stuff.
1: And just get it done I want to play a song for your kids now, Tanya Well, they're not really kids anymore But you have picked a Taylor Swift song to play on the show today Tell me about this one
0: Well, I love this one This is Love Story Which was, uh, you know, one of Taylor Swift's first big songs And I like, this is uh, Taylor's version So that's the re-recording that she's done um, she's obviously re-recording all of the early work Because she lost control of her music When um, her record company was bought out a few years ago And and so I, I really like this song Because it's great to sing along to And I know my 16-year-old son Joe will hate it When I tell people that he loves playing this song on the radio He puts it <laughs> on when we're, when we're driving places um, And he loves singing along to it too uh, I. Some of my happiest times have actually just been car trips with the kids, belting out songs at the top of our voices, like this song, Carly Simons, You're So Vain. Like, there's a bunch of them that we really like singing together. And this one in particular I like because Taylor Swift is reclaiming her voice as a woman. You know, she's not, she's not a teenager at the mercy of the record companies anymore. She's a woman um, but it's also it's about that first teenage love, so it's got that sort of sweet, wistful, uh, sort of trip down memory lane element to it as well. It's a sweet song, I reckon.
1: Hey. Listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming on the website, that was a song you probably wouldn't hear on this station very much. It was Love Story Taylor's Version by Taylor Swift, and it was chosen by my guest today on Out of the Box, Tanya Plibersek. Tanya, we talked about ambition earlier in the show, and you said you wouldn't describe yourself as someone who's very ambitious, but as someone with big ideas and a capacity for hard work, I I beg to differ. I think your track record shows both. I think there's a lot of ambition and a lot of big ideas, and I want to spend the next part of the show talking about some of the things that you've achieved in your time working as a parliamentary representative. So let's jump to 2003 when US President George Bush visited Australia. It was a huge moment for you Tell me about the letter you presented to US National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. I wanted George Bush to understand why
0: so many Australians were opposed to the Iraq wars. And I didn't want to, um, like there's a lot of talk about boycotting his uh, speech to the parliament and things like that. I, I don't think we convince people by turning our backs on them. I think we convince them by engaging with them. So I drafted a letter and I got um, a lot of my colleagues to sign the letter. And then I thought if I tried to actually hand it to him, I might get shot by his securities. So I took the opportunity of giving it to Condoleezza Rice, the National Security Advisor who was travelling with him. And uh, in that letter, I, I just laid out that, uh, you know, I thought the the weapons of mass destruction case had not been made, that. Um, nobody was supportive of Saddam Hussein, but if, if the international community is going to do something about Saddam Hussein then they have to do it with the uh, under the auspices of the United Nations that there's a proper process to follow and um, didn't manage to convince George Bush. but it was a I think it was a good way for the millions of Australians who opposed the Iraq Wars to know that their Parliament, although John Howard was a a supporter of, um, you know, all the way with the US on this one, that there were parliamentarians who disagreed and were um, putting the alternative viewpoint.
1: Yeah, and I guess that does speak to what we were talking about before, about picking the right moment and rolling the dice. I want to talk about the fact that you got so many people behind that letter, because it seems like throughout your career, you've got this uncanny ability to really rally people together and get multiple stakeholders agreeing on an issue. You did that successfully when you were working as the Minister for the Status of Women and you put together a $44.5 million national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. That plan had a lot of stakeholders as well, Tanya. Tell me about that. That's so Impressive.
0: Yeah, actually, that that national plan um, is just coming to an end now and uh, the, the work on the next national plan should be working. It's one of the things that actually survived from the Labor era into the, the Liberal government, and I'm very pleased that it did. Uh, the, the aim of the national plan was really to say everybody has a responsibility to reduce violence against women and their children. And um, that means local, state and federal government. It means the um, non-government sector working with government. But the only way really to achieve anything like this is to set timelines, allocate responsibility, put some funding behind it. And, And it's better not to do that in a haphazard way, but actually to sit down with the people who are going to be responsible for making the changes and say... What do you need? How does it need to happen? What do we need to do as a country to get this right? Um, I look back now and i 'm proud of the work that we did on the first national plan, but uh, I would do it I would do it differently if I was drafting the next national plan. I think um, it you know there's i 'd like to be uh, more ambitious than we were. Uh, I think we've got a better idea now. I mean, some of the things that we did like um, putting more money into research and prevention programs, I think we've now got more evidence of what works. Um, We need to back the evidence rather than, you know, trying to start from scratch every time we want to um, make improvements. But, yeah, it's a a good piece of work. I think it stands the test of time.
1: And it's not to say that it was without ambition at all or that that period of your life was without ambition because that was within 18 months of another really ambitious feat I'm talking about your plan to have homelessness in Australia yeah. tell me about that uh,
0: again that, that white paper on homelessness I'm so proud of that work we um when I was the housing minister we we built 21,600 new public housing homes we built the first thirty five thousand um, national rental affordability scheme properties. Um, the liberals cut that program when they came to government. Uh, we started eighty new homelessness services um, you know we did really we did really good work in homelessness, and it's heartbreaking that when we left government, not only was the funding not continued, not only were the programs killed off. But the, the Abbott government wouldn't even um, keep the aspiration to halve the rate of homelessness by 2020. It's just heartbreaking. You know, a country like Australia, um, we should be able to meet people's basic needs. And housing is such a basic need that it, it's, you know, the need for shelter, but also it's the place that... If you, if you want kids to be able to learn at school, they have to have a secure home. If you want someone to go out and get a job, they have to have a secure home. Um, it, it's the underpinning of so many other... For good health, you know, it's, it's impossible to protect your health if you're living rough or couch surfing. And I still uh, I still think this is one of the most critical areas of need in Australia today. Uh, homelessness, rough sleeping, insecure housing. And I really, really worry about your generation, Mia, and whether you'll ever be able to afford a home of your own. Uh, it's, so it's from the spectrum of, you know, really insecure housing and homelessness to this big group of people in the middle who, um, whose parents were able to afford a home of their own on, you know, a, one modest salary or two modest salaries. Now you have to be like, basically, you have to be a high income earner to even consider saving a deposit for a home. And that's just not right and not fair. The thing about this is when we're in government, we're able to do good things. And sometimes it feels like um, two steps forward, one step back, we lose and the, the good work we did is unwound. But I I remind myself, not all of it's unwound. There are, you know, there are
1: homes with people living in them today that are there because we built them when we're in government. Well, yeah, that's exactly it. There are people living in the houses that you're responsible for building. And it's among many of your achievements as a parliamentary representative. Some of them we have just listed. And earlier in the show, we talked about some of your big moments as a mother and as a family member as well. I want to jump to a time that those two worlds collided. It was in 2015 and it came in the form of a plea for clemency for Andrew Chan and Mayurin Sukumaran, who were on death row in Indonesia at the time, to Australian men. Tell me about that speech, Tanya, and why that issue was important to you.
0: Because I never support the death penalty anywhere ever. And um, I think it's... I think it's completely wrong for so many reasons. It's just morally and ethically wrong. But it's also... because so much evidence of the fact that we don't always get it right. You know, innocent people are convicted and serve decades of jail sentences before they're found to be innocent. We don't always get it right. Um, it was particularly... Uh, the, I know the speech that you're talking about, and I, I spoke at that time of... Um, Two things that were very personal for me Um, One was the death of my brother And um, I still find that very difficult to talk about But uh, I made the point that if you had left the decision For what to do to the person who killed my brother To me, I would have acted out of grief and rage And you can't you can't the state can't act out of grief and rage uh, and I, I suppose the flip side um, of the the personal story is that um, my husband uh, who's in his mid 50s now when he was a teenager was convicted of a heroin importation on a heroin importation charge and served three years in jail about three years and um, And I think if he had been picked up in Thailand, where the drugs originated from, uh, instead of Sydney, he'd probably be dead. And we would have missed out... or He would have missed out on making amends to um, the community and we would have missed out on a really beautiful husband and father and... I I was raised Catholic, I'm not a particularly religious person But these notions of um, forgiveness and mercy are really strong You know, the idea, he who is without sin should cast the first stone that, um, That and we should reach for the plank in our own eye Before we try and remove the splinter in our brother's eye Like these are... Notions that I was taught as a child that really have stayed with me, that none of us, none of us is perfect. And when you do something wrong, you have to own up to it. You have to face it. You have to make amends. Uh, But it is possible. It is, it's possible to forgive and recover. What's the next song you've chosen for today, Tanya? The last one I've chosen is an Ezra Furman song. Restless Year, it was super hard to to work out which Ezra Furman song to choose because Ezra Furman is a genius, but I chose Restless Year because it has been a crazy couple of years with COVID-19 and working from home and people struggling to keep their jobs and keep their businesses open and make a living and stay healthy and look after each other and stay connected it's been it's been a crazy time but this song is a really uplifting song about a restless year,
1: restless year Ezra Furman, the song is called Restless Year, you are listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull and I'm joined by Tanya Plibersek. Earlier in the show we were talking about, you know, your uncanny ability to pull together multiple stakeholders for these big causes and last year that materialised in the form of a book, Tanya, it's called Uptime. Oh <laughs>
0: Yay! We're plugging the book. Yay!
1: We're plugging the book. (laughs) It's called Upturn, a better normal after COVID-19. What do you think a better normal looks like?
0: A better normal is fairer, more just, more equal. Uh, It's jobs with a future, security, predictability. It's kindness and compassion, looking after each other. It's everybody having an opportunity to pursue their dreams. It means a great education system. So every kid, no matter where they grow up, no matter what their family background or their, their suburb of origin, has every opportunity in their future. Uh, it means um, making the most of these amazing gifts we have uh, in Australia. If we could We could be a renewable energy superpower. So I talk about... How renewable energy could power those new jobs and new industries. Um, it's uh, coming to fair terms with First Nations Australians uh, through implementing the demands of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's fairer, more just. In a in a nutshell, I was thinking about how much we'd achieved. Right during COVID nineteen, we moved almost overnight to remote learning. We doubled unemployment benefits. We um, we had JobKeeper so people didn't lose their income if they had to stay home. Um, we Australians stayed home. Uh, they looked after their neighbours. They got to, you know, there's all these WhatsApp groups being set up for the street. Do you need me to get you something at the shop? So you're doing all right. We connected um, again. So there's all this worry and trouble and difficulty um, on the health and economic fronts, and we rose to the occasion so amazingly what can we do as a nation if we apply that same spirit to the other big challenges that face us like inequality um like decarbonising our our energy supply what can we achieve i mean it's really i don't know
1: sky's the limit i guess it's so i guess charming is is the right word to hear these sentiments and how much they align with what you were talking about in your maiden speech back in 1998. It was really optimistic and, yeah, you were talking about your role as a Labor member being to articulate a positive vision for a better Australia and breathe life into that vision. I want to know how you intend on breathing life into these ideas you're talking about right now. Is it through being an author or a parliamentary representative or, you know... Leader well, of the Labour Party. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: the, the reason the reason I wanted to put it into a book is because I thought I'm having all these conversations. It's basically a bunch of people that I like and find interesting, right? And one of the wonderful privileges of being a Member of Parliament is you can ring someone like Ross Garno and say, Ross, I see you've written this book, Superpower, about um, a, a green hydrogen-powered uh, industrial revolution here in Australia. Can you talk to me a little... A little bit about it, and I, I, would, I just wanted to share those conversations that I get to have with, you know, Ros Roscano or, or June Oscar, the Race Discrimination Commissioner, or um, Sharon Lewin, who's uh, this amazing uh, um, doctor in Melbourne, who's um, you know cr- critical to our COVID response at the moment. Like all different people. What do you reckon? Like this question, what do you reckon? How can we do it better? And I, I didn't want to hoard that privilege to myself. I wanted to share it. So if people want to read the book, that's great. They get to share the, that fantastic opportunity I have to ask these great questions.
1: Well, yeah, if you were wanting to read the book, I'll put a link to that one up on the program's page on fbradio.com. Also on the program's page, you'll be able to listen back to this whole episode if you like, or you can listen back via the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Tanya Pliversek, thank you so much for joining me today on Out of the Box. It's been such a privilege having you here. Oh, it's been lovely to talk to you, Mia, really You've chosen a Body Type song to wrap up the interview. Why did you pick this one? Well, I, I really like Body Type. Um,
0: and it's funny, you know, because I think we started um, with uh, Lighthouse Keepers and Falling Joys and Body Type remind me, the style of the music reminds me a lot of that kind of 80s Australian music. But this song, uh, Palms, is about sort of fate and coincidence and um the uh sophie mccomish from the band says that it's uh when it's like when everything in the universe
1: sort of lines up to send you a message and i like that notion you know well let's jump into that right now on fbi radio 94.5 it's palms by body type as chosen by the member for sydney the honorable tanya Flippersek. This show is out of the box. Thank you so much for tuning in and don't go anywhere. Lunch is right around the corner. Thanks. Bye.